Welcome to Replay Value, the movie podcast that deep dives into the films we love and figures out why we find ourselves watching the same things over and over and over again. I'm your host, Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. We are happy to be here today talking about the sublime, perfect film, Pulp Fiction. I know you were probably excited as I am to do this episode, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, this is really one of the true, I mean, in almost all the movie lists considered one of the greatest movies of all time. It's Tarantino's masterpiece, arguably his greatest film. Yeah, I mean, it's one I've seen several times. One I probably saw when I was too young to see it for the first time, but one that has really stood with me for, let's see, when did it come out? Was it... um, 94? It was released October 14th, 1994. It had a box office of about $213 million, so it was a pretty good success considering it had a budget of $8 million. So certainly uh, was it was a smash hit, you know, as opposed to you know some other films we've talked about, maybe where it was a, they came on later, they had an afterlife or a second life after the movie was released. This movie right away, everyone knew it was special. Uh, and it won Best Picture at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, so it had a lot of buzz around it uh, coming out to uh, being being opened up to the public. So it came, and when it came out, it wasn't one of those kind of slow burns. It was like gangbusters right out the gate, especially for an indie film. And, and again, the budget was eight million, five million of which went to the cast. We'll talk about that later. But uh, pretty a low budget film, all things considered, and. Um, and it made a whole lot of money. Uh, it did manage. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It only won one, which in hindsight, looking back, I feel like it should have won one more Oscar hardware. What what Oscar did it win? I don't I don't remember, actually. Uh, it was uh, Quentin Tarantino won for best screenplay, which is actually his first ah. of two wins. Uh, he obviously later years later went on to win for Django Unchained. But that was his first Oscar win. And that's the thing that really, you know, stands with me, you know, kind of sits, stays with me as I'll go back and watch this movie is that the writing in it is just so good. And, and just like every movie with, uh, that has a high replay value that we talk about, you know, we'll, we'll get to our favorite quotes and whatnot, why it permeates through pop culture. But it's like the best quotes are actually like best scenes. They're like best paragraphs or uh, you know uh, give and takes between two characters it's rarely just one line yeah exactly but you know the really the dialogue i mean it's almost you know when you talk about you know quentin tarantino or aaron sorkin they, they write dialogue and such their dialogue has such significant meaning word for word and like the actors don't paraphrase or improv it they typically say it as is as it's written but you know what's interesting is one of the reasons it probably only won one oscar is the year it came out, 1994, probably single-handedly one of the greatest year in movies. Um, keep in mind, 1994 gave us also, in addition to Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, and Forrest Gump. 
Uh, so you could say a minor success in, in in the world of movies. I mean, really, just a lot of competition. So yeah, geez. I mean, any other year it probably would have won Best Picture. I mean, because Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Shawshank, all three of those on their own are good enough to win Best Picture in any given year. So all of them in the same year. Really, just a great year in movies, though. Lion King came out that year. Keep in mind. Uh, uh, that's a favorite of mine right now too I, that one has a high replay value for me because my kids watch it all the time <laughs> yeah yeah great. obviously one of my all, probably my favorite Disney movie I'd say Lion King 1 Aladdin 2 if you put a gun to my head but there's so many great ones um, um, Santa Claus came out that year Kevin Smith made his debut with Clerks D2 Mighty Ducks and the beloved, of course, one of my favorite replay value movies, Speed, also came out in 1994. So, great year in movies. Ah, yes. Yeah, great year in films. So, like I said, any other year, Pulp Fiction probably would have walked away with some more hardware, a few more wins. Um, uh, but nonetheless, doesn't diminish its influence, uh, its legacy uh, as one of the uh, great movies of all time. Really, I mean, that was just a juggernaut year for a movie. So, and for it to for us to still even be talking about it twenty four years later, I think that's a testament to to how great of a movie it is. In fact, that we talk about so many of those movies from from that time. So, getting into the movie itself, um, you know, Tarantino obviously he is an an eccentric, a genius, but how. How did this movie come about getting made as far as like the production of it? How did it get started? Well, um, it's interesting. Tarantino um, and, and, and a gentleman he was collaborating with, Roger Avery, were writing scripts uh, for a short film. Pulp Fiction really evolved over a period of time. It's an offspring of Reservoir Dogs. When they were writing these the scripts, uh, they realized that these the short film scripts, they realized nobody produces shorts, so they weren't going to be able to get any money for it. So they each expanded it into their, their own uh, script, into a feature length film script. And it was they took an inspiration from a three part anthology series, The Black Mask, uh, which is after a crime film magazine. And they finished out these scripts, wrote them out, and the Tarantinos became Reservoir Dogs. Now, the idea with this trilogy was to create three movies in one universe, which you got to keep in mind, before Marvel, before, you know, having all these movies, no one was doing that. You didn't have movies connected, characters from one movie popping into the other, and that's very much what Tarantino wanted to do. He wanted to make movies like authors get to write books. He wanted to be able to have these characters kind of filter in and out. So, he wrote Reservoir Dogs, and then Pulp Fiction was a part of that series, and that's where Vic Vega and Vincent Vega are brothers. The Mike, Michael Madsen's ah. character, Mr. Blonde. And Holy shit. Yeah, Vic Vega and John Travolta, Vincent Vega, or their characters are brothers. And there's a big rumor for why they're going to make the Vega Brothers movie never materialize. Obviously, Michael Madsen and John Travolta oh. are too old now. Man. Yeah, yeah. That'd be so awesome. Oh, that's shit. really, you know, it, but the, the, the thing is, Pulp Fiction was, uh, it was a hot commodity in Hollywood at the time. A lot of people, you know, the script was going around town. Tarantino massaged the script for about seven months as opposed to Reservoir Dogs, which he wrote in three weeks. But the success of Reservoir Dogs enabled him to really make this movie. It attracted a lot of names, and the ensemble cast is really what makes this movie go when you factor in, you mentioned how excellent the writing is, and then when you have great actors to execute it uh, on top of Tarantino directing it, I mean, this is really how, uh, 
lightning, you know, came to be captured in a bottle uh, with the making of this movie. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that you say Reservoir You know, you talk about referencing Reservoir Dogs quite a bit throughout that. You know, Reservoir Dogs came out in 1992, Pulp Fiction 94, just two short years between those massive cult classics. Um, so would you say that the success of Reservoir Dogs, I mean, obviously put Tarantino on the map, but would you say that without Reservoir Dogs, we would have had no Pulp Fiction? Uh, that's hard to say. You would like to think he would have made it at some point. I think filmmakers you always hear like, you know, Nolan massaged the uh, Inception script uh, for, you know, years. And I think filmmakers are like, he wrote a Howard Hughes script for a while, then Martin Scorsese made Aviator, so he shelved it. So I think these filmmakers have ideas or stories that they write over a long period of time. And I'd like to think he had such a strong vision and something to say with the movie that uh, I'd like to think he would have found a way to get it made. But you know what's really great about Pulp Fiction is when he wrote the script, the the idea of the story, the idea of Pulp Fiction came from using the oldest chets, chestnuts, okay, from, from crime stories, the oldest stories, okay? So basically in Pulp Fiction, there are three main narratives, three stories, okay? The first one, gotta, you, you, you gotta go out with the big man's wife and you can't touch her, okay? That story's been told a hundred ah. times, right? can't touch the big man's wife the way they do it is in such a unique way is that it's like um what's a, a good euphemism for it it's just like i don't know teaching teaching an old dog a new trick you know it's just like yes you're, you're it's a tale as old as time but it, you don't feel like you're you're hearing that same old story trope it's done in such a clever way just all around you know the way that story is told it's kind of cut up into pieces is brilliant but just that Vincent Vega arc right there at the beginning is just, ah, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and really, well, it's taking an old chestnut and then, again, sprinkling some uh, ingenuity to it or adding some realism to it and letting it unravel. And basically that happens with all three stories. The second uh, main narrative is a boxer's supposed to throw the fight and he doesn't, right? That, that was made God knows how many times. It sounds very cliche, but the when you see it again, it doesn't feel old. You feel like it's fresh. You know, it is. And even the story of the gold watch, I mean, that's a very, you know, uh, old, like these stories have a very, uh, a Hollywood tradition to them. And Tarantino's constantly paying homage to uh, classical films of yesteryear. And the third main narrative is two hitmen showing up, killing, leaving, but... We, the audience, don't leave. We stay with them. We, through the morning, we see how it goes. And we watch that situation unravel. So kind of like you said with the first narrative with the wife, or taking the, the, the big man's wife out, it, it's the same situation we've all heard, the same story we've all seen and heard a hundred times, but it's told in a very unique and different way. And, um, you know, these three stories are told over seven different sequences. This movie has seven different scenes that it steps in and out of. And... Um, you know, and it's just Tarantino taking these genre characters and situations, and just applying them to real life and seeing how, like, how we, you know, we said, you know, how it all. It, it, falls real apart. quick, <laughs> you know, that you're talking about one of these sequences is, um, or I guess the one of the three main kind of arcs or, or stories within this movie is about the father's the gold watch. Although, to be fair, there's probably not too many of those stories where. Um, it talks about how you had to shove a watch up his ass for for two years. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that quote on my bad, but it's just there's there's 
there's so many just little 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 nuggets there where you're just like part of it makes you laugh but it doesn't take away from the story it's it's just very unique and and really to you know kind of shift gears a little bit from the production aspect to kind of bring the whole movie together and for Tarantino to deliver this this masterpiece it really wouldn't work without a great great cast and and you you mentioned earlier that five million of the eight million dollar budget was for the cast like how 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 was this movie cast? How did he get these players to come into this movie? It's this okay, like we talked about, there was so much buzz around this movie. Uh the role that ended up going to John Travolta, uh Vincent Vega, was heavily pursued by Daniel Day Lewis. Whoa. Whole I'm gonna let that sink in for wow. a second. Daniel Day Lewis, the guy that acts once every, you know, millennia, wanted to play this part and Tarantino would not give it to him. He wanted Travolta to play. So wow. that just goes, and I got to tell you the money I would pay to see day Lewis play Vince Vega. No disrespect to John Travolta. John Travolta does a great job and we all love Travolta. I mean, he's not anymore, but he used to be one of our great movie stars. Um, and this really, this movie served as a, re, a rebirth, the second coming of Travolta. Yeah, no, I'm just saying Daniel Day-Lewis would have been great in this role, though. I just, I think about it, the more I think, I mean, I think he just would have, I mean, Day-Lewis is great in everything, obviously, but I would have just really been interested to see his interpretation and, and performance as this character. But, you know, Tarantino really pushed for Travolta. Travolta actually took a reduced pay. I mean, I think he took like the sack minimum. I think he took around 100 grand, which for someone of his stature is not a lot of money. Tarantino just really wanted Travolta, really pushed for it and uh, ended up having his way. Obviously, this led to John Travolta getting an Oscar nomination. And really, we talk about the three narratives. John Travolta is the lead of the first story. Okay, and what's great about this movie? All these th- th- there's really three main characters in this movie. Just like there's three main narratives, there's three main characters. John Travolta's Vince Vega, Samuel L. Jackson's Jules, and Bruce Willis's Butch. Okay, those are your three leads. And John Travolta is the lead of the first one, and and they just kind of he and John Travolta also sprinkles into you know he makes a cameo in uh, Bruce Willis's uh, story or Butch's story, uh, and he also is a supporting actor or supporting character in Samuel L. Jackson Jules's story. So and, and that that's the case with all three of them. They tend to they show up in each other's stories. Um, but that's really you know Travolta. I think we can agree. Really, this was a huge comeback for him. Uh, uh, really put him back on the map. And what doesn't get as much attention is that this also was really big for Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis had not really had a hit since Die Hard. Oh yeah, you ended up getting to see Willis and you know Sam Jackson doing Die Hard with a Vengeance. You know, uh, probably at around the same time or shortly after that. But um, yeah, inter- yeah, yeah. Ninety five. Interestingly yeah. enough, is that I actually read that as the agencies were like pitching, you know, the script uh, that for when it came to casting, that there were names like Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman thrown around for this movie, which is kind of crazy just how much buzz Tarantino had. I mean, obviously, I don't know how close you just see these rumors. You don't know how close to that came to actually happening, but it's just um, it's just kind of crazy that. Um, that you know, you said Daniel Day Lewis. Well, yeah, like even the Day Lewis right. thing we mentioned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the the different names that were in contention. We can get give Tarantino credit for how specific his vision is. He knew exactly what he wanted, and he really went after these actors. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson, who was also Oscar nominated in this role, and really sparked Samuel L. Jackson's career, but took it to whole new heights. 
Uh, unlike Travolta and Bruce Willis, he had not been a movie star before, but this helped him become one. Certainly propelled him into the zeitgeist. But he had met Tarantino auditioning for Reservoir Dogs and didn't get the part. And Tarantino had written the part of Jules uh, with Samuel L. Jackson in mind. Wow. Um, it's kind of another minor thing here. Um, did you know that, um, you know, Vincent's drug dealer in the movie, Lance, hello, Lance, Vincent, I'm in big fucking trouble, man. I'm coming to your house. Whoa, whoa. Hold your horses, man. What, what's the problem? I got this chick. She's fucking ODing on me. Well, don't bring her here. I'm not even fucking joking with you, man. Do not be bringing some fucked up booba to my house. No choice. She's ODing? She's fucking dying on me, man. Okay, well, then you bite the fucking bullet and you take her to a hospital and call a lawyer. Negative. This is, this is not my fucking problem, man. You fucked her up. You fucking deal with this. Uh, are you talking to me on a cellular phone? I don't know you. Who is this? Don't come here. I'm hanging up the phone. Prank caller. Prank caller. Eric Stoltz crushes it in that part. His wife, Rosanna Arquette, was almost, well, I shouldn't say almost, but Ellen DeGeneres actually tried out for that part. So it's kind of crazy. Oh, wow. That that would have been interesting. Of course, you have now what is those little kind of fleet of Tarantino actors that even if they step in with a small bit part here and there, they're like apparent in every movie. Well, like Samuel L. Jackson. You had Harvey Keitel as the wolf. And even um, uh, Steve Steve Buscemi as the waiter in Jackrabbit Slims, uh, the Buddy Holly uh, waiter, and then yes. and then of course you know Tarantino loves to cast himself in <laughs> pretty much every movie these days. And why wouldn't you? I mean, if I was at that level, I would put myself in a small bit part. But I mean, he does a great job with it. But yeah, he tends to show up in a lot of his movies. Um, the cast those those three main leads, and then. Kind of the rest of the cast, Tarantino described it as like being special guest stars that kind of drive the character forward, the story forward, and also like you know, Mr. Wallace, uh, uh, you know, played by Bing Rames, uh, is you know the boss in all three stories. So he's what you know, he's like a bedrock character. He ties those stories together. So there's bedrock characters, special guest stars. You mentioned a lot of great cameos in it. Christopher Walken, obviously, like we said with the Gold Watch. Uh, Steve Buscemi is the waiter. Eric Stoltz is the drug dealer. Rosanna Arquette is his wife. Um, what's also really great, though, casting-wise, did you know Jennifer Aniston was nearly cast as Mia Wallace? That would have been awful. Oh, my gosh. That would have been horrible. <laughs> well, I think, you know, look at it again. Uma Thurman, give her credit, also nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Um, she really did a great job, and this also propelled her. And, and I think that's, sorry, and, that, and that's that's the kind of the thing. It's like, no offense to Jennifer Aniston, even though it sounded like I just dissed her pretty hard. It's just Uma Thurman did such a wonderful job in that role that it would be difficult to see someone else step in those shoes, so to speak. It's like that's, that is her Mia. Yeah, surely. Mia it. Wallace is Uma Thurman or Uma Thurman is Mia Wallace. What, however you want to say it. It just, I cannot see, you know, Rachel from friends as Mia Wallace. It just ODing on heroin. It just, you know, yeah. I can't see it. Well, yeah, it's one of her definitive, um, roles of her career. And you know, what's funny of the 54 cast members in Pulp Fiction 50 of them are listed as known for Pulp Fiction. Wow. And we have to give honorable mention to Tim Roth, who does a great job playing oh, yeah. uh, you know, Pumpkin oh, in this yeah. film. Absolutely. He's in a couple scenes. Yeah, so again, all around an amazing cast through and through. In the big parts, in the supporting parts, in the cameos, I mean, Tarantino really uh, uh, outdid himself. Absolutely right, Warren. And of course, with 
an amazing script and an amazing cast come amazing scenes. And that's kind of one of my favorite parts of the podcast to get in and talk about is the best scenes of the movie. And, um, you know, uh, of course, you know, best scenes, best quotes is what, we, what we've got. Warren, what are some of your favorite scenes from this movie? What, what really s- sits with you? Man. Well, see, as we talk, there's only really there's only seven scenes, so it doesn't have very many scenes in the movie, uh, and they're all fantastic. So it's really hard to pick. Um, the gold watch story uh, and, and Butch in his apartment. You know, when his uh, girlfriend forgets the watch, he has to go back and retrieve it. He has the run in with Vince uh, Vega um, and Mr. Wallace. Now, I love that whole story uh, there, Jules and Vince. Killing the group of um, uh, guys, like uh, the first scene, they were eating breakfast. Um, uh, Brett uh, and, and retrieving the suitcase. That's a great scene. Uh, really a strong opening to the movie. And really anything with Jules and Vince, you know, even when it opens with them in the car, you know, uh, the Royale Cheese scene. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, it's just there. It's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with you. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. With Jules and Vince are uh, with dealing with Mr. Wolf, and they're cleaning out the car. I mean, that's probably one of the best exchanges. I got a threshold, Jules. I got a threshold for the abuse that I will take. Now, I'm, right now, I'm a fucking race car, right? And you got me in a red. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying that it's fucking dangerous to have a race car in a fucking red. That's all. I could blow. Oh, oh, you ready to blow? Yeah, I'm ready to blow. Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. Every time my fingers touch brain, I'm super fly TNT. I'm the guns of the Navarone. In fact, what the fuck am I doing in the back? You the motherfucker should be on brain detail. We're fucking switching. I'm washing the windows and you picking up this nigga's skull. Well, he, he makes an excellent point. Why would he be back there? Vegas should be the one doing it. So, um, you know, yeah. It, it, so really anything with Vince and Jules, um, and, you know, Vin, and Jules and Ringo at the cafe. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson steals every scene he's in. If I had to, I mean, he really is the, the scene stealer. Uh, it's so hard, but if I got to pick one, um, yeah, I'm going to say Jules and Vince after he accidentally blows off, uh, is it Marcus's head? Marvin, what do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you got to have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped... Oh, oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I seen some crazy-ass shit in my time, but just... Chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You probably... 
he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Believe it, man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We gotta get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving a just car against this fucking a, blood. Just take it to a friendly place, that's all. This is the valley, Vincent. Marcellus ain't got no friendly well, places in the valley. Well, you save my fucking town, man. Shit. Yeah, so, yeah, when he's like, when, when Travolta turns around and asks him, hey, what do you think? And he accidentally shoots him the, from there on, that whole thing where they, you know, Mr. Wolf has to come to the rescue. He's got to hose him down. You know, that that whole sequence, my favorite. Most enjoyable part of the movie. And it's funny just, you know, it's the way they handle it. You know, I love, you're absolutely right. It's a wonderful scene. Um, the way that they, they handle it is just hilarious because they're just like oh you hit a bump no i didn't hit no fucking bump you know and just like almost like it was just you know they're surprised but at the same time there is this kind of underlying tone of casualness to it that just it just absolutely just encapsulates those two characters and and like you said there are so many memorable scenes from this movie but if i had to pick one it's going to sound kind of lame probably, but I would actually pick the very first scene of the movie where you have, you know, pumpkin and honey bunny, you know, Tim Roth and uh, the actress's name escapes me, but you have the two of them sitting in the cafe, the opening of the movie, just talking, you know, very nonchalant about, um, you know, robbing the place. And then all of a sudden, everybody be cool. This is a robbery. What a way to start a movie! And and, and uh, the actress's name, by the way, Honey Bunny, played by Amanda Plummer. Thank you, God. The, ah, I was on the tip of my tongue. Thank you very much. This is why. This is why you're here, the industry expert, Warren. Thank you very much. A, a walking IMDb. I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, <laughs> more like industry but no, just, dork. But uh, yeah, <laughs> a dork expert. Those two are pretty interchangeable. But just the way that that just again, it just sets the tone, and just you just it just. As soon as that line comes, and then the mu- the music hits, um, and then it kind of goes into the um, the song where you have you know the Jungle Boogie, um, and then you have Vincent and Jules in the car. It just it just sucks you right in, and and, and to me that is why it would be is my favorite scene, just because of what it launches for the next two hours. So just understand, your favorite scene is Honey Bunny and Pumpkin before the credits. It's not John Travolta and Jules in the car talking about. The Royale with cheese. That is correct. Okay. All right. Interesting choice. Um, questionable. I'm going to say questionable respectfully. Uh, doesn't sound like it's very respectful, but hey, I respect your respectful opinion. Um, now, going on to kind of... Yeah, con- but no, that's, that's what makes this movie great, though, is there's so many great scenes, and each one of them means something different to somebody else. So, uh, again, just speaks to the greatness of the movie. And, and kind of... I guess piggybacking off of best scene, do you have a best or a favorite, I should say, favorite quote of the movie? Again, dialogue is Tarantino's strong suit. There's a plethora of one-liners in this movie. I mean, you got the Royale with cheese. That was pretty trippy. Zed's dead. Medieval on your ass. Uh, the one that says bad motherfucker. I mean, there are so many great lines in this, but if I've got to pick one, and maybe I'm just going to have to go with uh, Here we go. my man oh, Samuel L. Jackson. Ah. Ezekiel 25.17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish 
and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Dude, that is so cliche, but I, you have to pick it. it will, I'm glad one of you us. Have to, you have to. You have to. You have to. And you know you know what's great about this quote? In rewatching the movie, I, I caught this. This is so great. Is that I love how when he starts to say the quote, he says Ezekiel, like he starts to go into it. If you watch in the background, John Travolta, Vincent, is already pulling out his gun waiting on him to finish his spiel. And it implies that like this happens, like he does this all the time. And, and, and of course he does because later in the movie, when he's talking to Pumpkin at the very end in the cafe, he, when he talks about the revelation he had, uh, he tells him that, you know, that that was used to be some shit I just said before I blew a motherfucker away. So he, he does say it a lot, but I think that's just a great little subtlety in that scene that shows you, you know, it's very truthful to the fact that he does it every time that, that, that John Travolta, Vince Vega is already, you know, prepping to, to, to shoot the guys. Cause he knows he, after the he quote, knows. That's, when they, that's when they do it. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I did never picked up on that, but, uh, next time I watch the movie, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. I know, We'll get into this kind of references and stuff to other aspects of pop culture. But since we're talking about this quote, I have to mention in the movie, um, one of the Avengers movies where he plays Nick Fury and they think that he has died on his gravestone. I think it says the path of the righteous man. It kind of makes that tongue in cheek reference to Pulp Fiction. I'm not quite sure if you remember that or not. Of course. Yeah. Okay. I figured you did. Now, my favorite quote is actually also a Samuel L. Jackson quote. You mentioned it earlier, but it's the scene where he's like reaching there, grab my wallet. You know, which one is it? Which one is it? This is one that says bad motherfucker on it, you know. Now, I want you to go in that bag and find my wallet. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad motherfucker. That's just perfect that wallet iconic i have that wallet now i think so do you we both have that wallet we bought it independently of one another what did we just become best friends yep it's a great wallet to have now depending on where i'm going i might have to put it upside down on the counter you know if i'm at a toy store or something but i love the wallet so uh did you know that in the movie that that as that was actually quentin tarantino's wallet that they use as a prop that was really his wallet. Anyway. And, you know, it, it's so funny you mentioned that quote because, again, it goes with Samuel L. Jackson. He is the scene stealer in this movie. He has a lot of great lines. moments and all, all the best lines. And, and he really, you yeah. got to give credit to him. Uh, and going back, you know what? We got to, I got to look at who he lost the Oscar to. I mean, let me, I'm going to, how did he not win? Yeah, I'm looking this up. While you're, you're uh, doing a little research there, um, I was just thinking is this that he obviously he I'm sure he was I doubt he was nominated for lead. He would have been nominated for best supporting actor, um, which again, like you said earlier, real tough year for movies. So I hope it's not one of those where it's like you look back and you're like, ah, oh, how the fuck did he lose to this person? You know, I'm sure they were talented, had a good role, but at the same time, it 
Samuel Jackson, I mean, it's one of the most iconic roles. So many quotes. He just absolutely crushes okay. the part. Okay, so here's who else was nominated. Uh, Gary Sinise for Forrest Gump. That's who won. Right. Uh, no, 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 he didn't win. Uh, Chaz Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway. I hope I said his name right. And Paul Schofield for Quiz Show. The winner, Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Uh, okay. I'm going to be honest. I've never seen Ed Wood, so I really can't say anything. It's it's a good movie. Johnny Johnny Depp's one of my favorite performances of his, and certainly underrated. He, Johnny Depp is just so great in Ed Wood. But Martin Landau uh, can't say he doesn't deserve the Oscar. I mean, but it's one of those things where the, the Academy will give Oscars to people. It's not necessarily their best performance. It's just their time. And Martin Landau was at the time where he deserved an Oscar. But, you know, when you look back, I, I really feel like, you know, and, and time does tell the truth on, on, on art. It's hard to see how. I, I think if you were to do it again today, you'd probably give it to Samuel Jackson because it's by far the most definitive, most influential character uh, uh, on that list. And, yes. and, and um yeah, looking back, I certainly would have given he he deserves. It. Not taking it away from Martin Landau, I, I don't want to say that, but if it was the award was given out today, he would win. Samuel Jackson would win. Absolutely, I, I'm gonna have to agree with either that or maybe Sinise for Forrest Gump, who also did a great job. You know, going with that same vein, you know, you talk about Samuel Jackson and how great he did at the you know in, with the with this role. This is my actually my favorite part of the podcast. What would happen? Who do you think? would have gotten been cast in the role of Jules if that movie were made today. Like who who would be your dream cast if you could well, pick anybody? Well, my, my my no, in my dream cast. Yeah, my dream cast. Okay, cuz that's what I was going to say. That's a different who do I think we get cast in it versus who do I who would I want to cast in it and I Fair enough. I have got who I would want to cast. Um uh, let's see. So, if I was casting the film with today's stars as Vincent Vega, I would cast Christian Bale. Wow. Oh, man, that's so good. So good. When I was doing this, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Vincent Vega stumped me a little bit on who I wanted. I ended up settling for two. I'll get to mine in a minute. Continue. Go ahead. Um, no, but let's get your Vincent, and then we'll move on. Okay. How about that? That's fair enough. All right. Uh, my Vincent Vega, I kind of, again, my first inclination was Leonardo DiCaprio. But I felt that I was like, ah, I don't know. Mm. And then I thought about it some more. I don't think it would ever happen. But I think that Robert Downey Jr. would be freaking awesome in that part. I think he'd crush it. Anyway, it was, it was between those two for me. Uh, that'd be interesting. Downey's certainly one of the most talented actors. He's got more talent as Pinky than most actors have in their whole body. So I would say... Robert Downey Jr. would certainly be capable of doing the part. It would be different. I'd almost see him being a different type of Jules character because he's so fast-talking and high-energy. I'm going to see if you were to go a different way with Jules uh, that he may be an interesting choice. But, okay. You mean, you, uh, mean, right, Vince, uh, you mean with Vincent or with Jules? With with uh, Jules. Oh, I think it, you're, you're, mention, you're mentioning him. You're mentioning him as Vincent. I think he would be more. Oh. It'd be more interesting to see Robert Downey Jr. play Ooh. Jules because of Downey's has got such a quick tongue. He's very talented and articulate. But anyway, uh, yeah. So th- that's not my choice, uh, but for Jules. But I was just that's interesting. You cast him as Vincent. All right. So who would be your choice for Jules? 
Idris Elba. <gasps> you son of a bitch. That's so good. Oh, man, that's good. Damn. Uh, uh, my Jules was, uh, I said, kind of keeping it in the Tarantino family. I said Jamie Foxx. I think he'd be awesome. Jamie Foxx. Um, All right. Uh, j- j- uh, yeah. yeah. Come on. Jamie Foxx is great. Like, I-, I could see if Tarantino made this movie today, I would, he, I think Jamie Foxx would definitely be in, in the front running for that role. And, and I think he would do great in it. Okay. Uh, moving on for Butch. Do you have anybody for Butch? That you wanted to do? Yes, I do. I think for Butch, I would cast Tom Hardy. Ah, man, you are crushing it, man. That's really, really good. I thought about actually wanting to put him in somewhere in the movie. I felt like he would do great at this part. I, for Butch, had Mark Wahlberg, who I thought would be pretty good. But I, now that you've said Tom Hardy, mm. I like that better. But I do think... <laughs> I do think Mark Wahlberg would would do really well, really well in this part. So yeah, yeah. I, well, I, you know, it's like I mean, we're we're really picking from a smorgasbord of Hollywood's finest movie stars. So I mean, I'm sure they all would bring something interesting and talented and unique to it. But um, you know, for me personally, I really just who I'd want to see to play those characters. Uh, those are those are my picks on the three main I, characters. I, I, I don't think that it would be a $5 million budget for the actors if we got our, our druthers when it came to that. Um, so we kind of, we kind of, you know, covered obviously the main, the, the leads of the movie. Did you have any uh, supporting actors that you would maybe dreamcast if it was uh, remade today or done today? Yeah. Uh, this may uh, be going in the uh, David or Russell vein here, but as Mia, I think I'd go with Jennifer Lawrence. Have the Bale Lawrence mm. Reed team from American Hustle. Mm. Okay. Um, I, this is the last one that I had. Um, so if you've got any others, you can go ahead and go after this. But um, for Mia, I like Margot Robbie as Mia. That's me. Ooh, okay. I do like that. That might be, that might actually, I think we take my three leads and Margot is Mia. We might have the cast right there. Okay. But that, that was my last one. So, I, you won the first. I, I can't say you won, but I like your first three better than my first three. <laughs> yeah, this yeah, uh, this just kind of came to me. Um, let me see. Uh, for Marcellus Wallace, I like Denzel, and the reason why good. I, I feel That's good. Yeah, the thing is, Denzel's older now, and he, he's not as uh, big, obviously, uh, as Vic Rames, uh, physically imposing, but Denzel's very intimidating, and, and he has this authority about him, and I think he would really be great in that character. be very interesting. Um, and uh, for Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, I like Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander. That's perfect real-life couple. You know, they're married, uh, obviously. Uh, um, so that, man, that would be really good. Mr. Wolf. Robert Downey Jr. Oh, there it is. There's the Downey connection. Ah, you bastard. Yes, I did. I didn't want to reveal that, but I think he would be Downey. Would be great as Mr. Wolf. He he would. I think. Yeah, I mean, you like you said, he's a just a great actor and would be uh, superb in any any role that he was put in. Lance, Lance. Last but not least, I got to give you my Lance. Sorry. Um, I'm gonna go with Michael Keaton. (laughs) <laughs> yes have you seen michael keaton in clear history no i have not oh my gosh a larry david movie on hbo if you haven't seen it watch it it is, is it the one he's with, great is john ham in it 
where he yes, like yes. gets bought out of a company or something like that and yes. gets rich. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't know he was in that. I watched like the first fifteen minutes and it I started it too late and fell asleep. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um that is great. I almost said earlier I was when I was looking at these uh, earlier in the week, I'm Michael Keaton's so great. What if he could be Vincent Vega? And I was like, nah, no, nah, he's too old. So but I did actually did consider him. Um that's just just perfect. Well, he, and that would be a different take on the character now because Eric Stoltz was younger when he played Lance than Michael Keaton is now. But in thinking of Michael Keaton in the in character he played from Clear History, I just think it would... Lance obviously has some great comedic moments in the script, and I feel like Michael Keaton would really bring something interesting to those. Uh, no, definitely. I 100% agree with you there. Now, um, uh, real quick, before we, you know, move on from you know the 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 how, if it was made today we talked about the cast but do you do, let's talk about the success do you think that the movie would have made as much money like how how do you think it would have been received if it were if it were made today box office wise i feel like i'm it's just so crowded now um and with all the blockbuster tentpole movies being made i i, I still think it would get the critical um acclaim I still think it would have, and, and even I think nowadays you could even argue because it was in such a competitive year as we've talked about before that if it came out today, it would probably win Best Picture for the year. I mean, because it really would, uh, prob- more more likely than not. But box office wise, I feel like it probably wouldn't be as successful. I, I'm gonna absolutely agree with you there. It, it, like it seems like in the era of you know the early to mid '90s. You could have a movie like this come out and be successful at the box office, make what in excess of two hundred million dollars. Um, I do think with a name like Tarantino attached to it, it still would be successful. But unless it's like, you know, unless it's like a major draw, like some sort of blockbuster or reboot or some sort of established IP, it's very tough these days to to pull your you know pull people's attention from all the other mediums uh, and inputs they've got from you know YouTube and te- the golden age of television and blockbuster movies just pulling at them at all times and, and there's really not a place for this kind of movie anymore in the marketplace it would almost you feel like it would be made into an HBO miniseries limited event or, or something like that I mean this movie is a breezy two hours and 34 minutes you know the original cut was 178 minutes so they certainly had more to work with and you almost feel like maybe this would have been in a different medium to if, if it had come out today but you know the thing is great scripts even today still attract big names and so I feel like it would still have an ensemble cast uh, especially with the director coming off the success that Tarantino was with Reservoir Dogs People wanted to be in his movies. They, it was a hot commodity. This script was. It still would be today. The success of the cast and the critical uh, acclaim would carry over. Uh, but as we talked about, I feel like the box office probably uh, wouldn't. Uh, the movie would cost more to make today mm-hmm. than it did then. Uh, and it probably wouldn't make as much. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Is that you couldn't make it for $8 million. I know there's some inflation for it being 24 years. God, I cannot believe I'm saying that that this movie is 24 years old, but you know, there's a little inflation there, but you're right. The, the as successful as Tarantino is now. And just the way that movies are actor salaries, there's no way it would even be, it would be 
10 times as much as I mean, it'd probably be a 60 to 80 million dollar budget I would say um, but because it does have the Tarantino name it well, I don't know about that, that high but yeah it would still be pretty I mean it would uh, 8 million then I would say it would probably at least be 30 to 40 million now I mean um, that, that's assuming that actors take a, a big pay cut just to be in a Tarantino film so you, you're probably right you're you know a lot more about that than I do. I just I think it would it would cost a lot more to make it to, uh, today though. So, um, mm-hmm, absolutely. So Warren, going back and watching the movie as we both did this past week, how how do you feel like this movie is aged? Really well. Um, you watch it today, and it, there the moments still land where it's supposed to be funny. It's funny. You know, it makes you laugh where you're supposed to laugh. All the moments still hit. You know, it's, and I think what has helped the movie age is it actually does not have a film score. That was a conscious decision that was made. They did not score this film in post. They just, you know, use artist songs, uh, you know, that Tarantino selected for the film. But there's no score. And when a movie has a score, that tends to date the film. It makes it harder for the film to stand the test of time because the music tends to date it. Um, you know, like for example, the, J- the James Bond movies in this, you know, uh, the early James Bond movies, you know, the musical dated in some instances, movies like that, because it doesn't have a score. I really feel like that does help, uh, with it aging. So, so well. you would actually think to me that the opposite would be true because, you know, music and popular culture, it dates itself. Like you hear a song, you know, when it came out. However, I will agree with you in the instance of Pulp Fiction it kind of helped it. It worked in its favor because the songs that Tarantino selected were not songs that were popular at that time. They were songs that were popular probably 20 years beforehand or at least 10, 10 to 20 years beforehand, you know, so it really worked kind of like the success of, um, you know, guardians of the galaxy, like that soundtrack. It was, they used songs that were already classics that will forever be classics. You know, uh, like the James Bond instance, you hear that theme and it and it dates it because you associate that theme with a certain, you know, with an older movie, so to speak. You know, this movie for being 24 years old, just watching it, it does age surprisingly well. I think that you're right about the music and it being from artists and, and, and representing a time period. And, but that doesn't date the film. That just kind of makes it like this this bottled up piece of art from this certain time period. What I was talking about that doesn't that helps it age and not having a score is like emotional moments or moments where mm. there would be a score to incite emotion. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't have those, and those moments tend to be dated over time. It's harder for a movie to age under that kind of scrutiny, and that's what this movie doesn't have. And I feel like that's what I was talking about uh, with the score. Okay, no, and, and it not having. I got it. you. Yeah, uh, but I mean. The music itself is, um, it, 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 you don't feel like it's dated even when you hear those songs too. Um, plus it's like, you know, as far as fashion wise, like everybody kind of has for the most part, a very classic look to them. Like, uh, the, the suits, uh, even the clothes that Jules and Vincent wear at the end when they have to change, they're intentionally very cheesy and like, they just look, they look goofy as hell in the nineties. They would look goofy as hell in, in 2018. It doesn't change. So uh, the choices that were made, you don't feel like I, you know, I'm watching a movie that this that is this old. The themes they still resonate today, like you said. The the jokes still work. It's they don't have like a lot of outdated pop culture references. So, as far as for um, you know the 
the the way that it's aged, it's just I, I think it's it, it's done phenomenally, and it's still it's still a, a very entertaining watch to this day. As we've discussed throughout the episode, just a, a movie that is stood the test of time, and just as any movie with a high replay value, there's going to be a lasting legacy. It's going to leave an influence that permeates through pop culture. Warren, um, for you, what what is the legacy of this movie? <laughs> it's such a hard question just to ask uh, because its influence is just so far-reaching. Um, you know, Pulp Fiction wasn't the first movie to use non-linear storytelling. You know, like you know Annie Hall, Citizen Kane did it. But it showed a true potential in the format. You know, jumping around. Um, you know, seeing Travolta, uh, Vince Vega get shot by Butch, and then seeing him alive in Jules's cafe scene with Pumpkin and, and Honey Bunny later. It, that really hadn't been done a lot, and, and Pulp Fiction really influenced other movies to embrace this type of storytelling. You know, I don't think we would have Christopher Nolan's Memento without Pulp Fiction. So it's really been influential in, in, in nonlinear storytelling in, in, in the movie industry. Um, and it's considered the greatest indie movie ever. And certainly one of the greatest movies ever, but it is it has that title. It is considered the greatest independent film of all time. Really, you would con- it's considered an independent film? Is it? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was yeah. it, it debuted at Cannes, and Roger Ebert in 2008 uh, described Pulp Fiction as, quote, the most influential film of the decade. Wow. Of the whole decade. Jeez. I mean, and, 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 and that's Roger Ebert, so, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily, you do not want to take that with a grain of salt. The man knows his fucking movies. Um, but just for me, the, um, I mean, obviously, the fact that we're talking about this movie is a testament to its legacy, but really, you know, with a kind of a common theme with these movies, the high replay value is that they are all over pop culture, the quotes, the impersonations, the, the parodies. In fact, um, my wife and I, we just saw a movie a few weeks ago, uh, in theaters game night. It's got Jason Bateman and, um, Rachel McAdams. And, there's one scene where in a joking way, she pulls out what she thinks is a fake gun in a bar and does the, the quote that honey bunny does in the, the diner at the beginning. It's just like, all right, you mother, any one of you motherfuckers moving, I'll execute every last one of you. You know, she does that. It's just like, and you, it doesn't have to say, you know, Pulp Fiction, you know what it is from. So for me, that is just, um, it's it, it just the, the legacy of the movie. Part of it is it's just presence in pop culture and it never goes away. It's still there, even in new movies that, that are coming out this year. Oh yeah. And, and I mean, it's been movies, it's, it's impact is stretched to television shows. I mean, even the Sopranos, um, you know, not to mention music. I mean, like we talked about before, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. I mean, I think you've got to put it there with the Forrest Gump soundtrack, uh, which coincidentally again, came out in the same year. Its influence, again, is is television, music, and even, uh, again, with film, and and this is something Tarantino's even done with Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, but Pulp Fiction, it it stylized violence in a way we hadn't seen before. Mm, Yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. You're absolutely right, yes. This movie also, you know, Bruce Willis being in it was kind of a big deal, an action star, a movie star starring in an independent film. I mean, it really shifted the way that indies and big-budget studios would do business with independent films. So um, it certainly gave this film some legitimacy, and 
you know, helps the studios buy in when they have a star name attached. But that was really a big deal when Bruce Willis, an action star, signed on to make this movie. And this film, you know, when you talk about the influence, it's in the, the National Film Registry. Uh, it's made almost all the American Film Institute 100 Years of Movies list. Uh, you know, the top 100 movies, top heroes and villains, top laughs, top movie lines. Um, Roger Ebert said it's one of the most influential films of the decade. But, I mean, you could argue this is one of the most influential films if there's an all-time list for most influential movies, Pulp Fiction's on there. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that kind of you know leads me into the last thing that um, I want to talk about is you know the really the nitty gritty of why we chose this movie is you know how do you quantify why we watch this movie over and over again? Warren, what is it to you that gives the film a high replay value? You know, and I it informed my choice on the best scene, the best quotes is the Jules and Vincent relationship. The banter, the chemistry, the, ex- the exchanges they have, the moments they have that we get to enjoy watching them interact with each other. And I really feel like, you know, when you look at movies like Lethal Weapon, you know, Shane Black's really great at that buddy cop or even the Bad Boys films. For me, and I'm obviously not putting those movies on the same plane as this, but just from the relationship standpoint, the two buddies, whether it's Hitman, Cops, together... There's just something that that, that I, I really uh, that component of the storytelling that I really enjoy going back and watching any scene with those two. And, and again, the whole movie's great, but for me, those two really help that movie carry over. Because when we watch movies, we always you know say, "Oh, that per- you're like this person, or you're like that person," or and 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 I just feel like it's that relationship is. There's elements of it that are very relatable that that, that we share with someone else, and so. I, yeah, again, I, I'd really have to say just uh, the the, um, the performances and the relationships uh, that these actors have with each other on screen is, is really what makes it so rewatchable. And it's kind of crazy is that it makes you root for two bad guys, two hitmen, which is it's a kind of a common theme nowadays. You know, you root for the anti-hero, the Walter Whites, the Tony Sopranos. But back then, you know, it's just like, they those were not good guys, but you're like, oh, they're cool, you know. You made you made you kind of root for them a little bit. Um, it humanizes monsters, and that's really what the antihero does. Is it somehow gets you to root for people you shouldn't be rooting for? And Tarantino taking a step further with the stylized violence, and especially like in Django and Chain, there's violent moments that you shouldn't be laughing. It's so messed up, so fucked up, but you do anyways, and that's really the brilliance. Or one of the things that's so brilliant about uh, uh, Tarantino's writing and, and, and some of the, some of the moments he has in, in his films, of course. And then you look at like Kill Bill, same thing, very stylized violence, but into very kind of gory scenes. You know, you, you kind of in some parts you laugh about it because it's just so excessive. That that one it makes it enjoyable. That one to a different degree, yeah. but uh, somehow, somehow, right? Yeah, and, uh, or even like John Wick, like it's like violent. Uh, porn or uh, <laughs> you know it's like gore porn or something it's just the very talented filmmaker somehow takes something that's a very um dark topic or dark matter something that's supposed to be hard to watch and they make it enjoyable to watch um and and again pulp fiction from start to finish an absolute pleasure well that is going to do it for this episode of replay value thank you so much for listening please rate and subscribe if you haven't already that does help us out a lot and we greatly appreciate it Remember to download new episodes every other Tuesday. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Bye.